Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Juliana Krasilska was sold into slavery as a six-year-old in a part of Persia now located in present-day Afghanistan. As a concubine, she's passed from master to master until at last she has the chance to leave with a man she loves. Later, she meets and marries a a Russian nobleman. When that marriage fails, she escapes to Poland, where she becomes mistress to the younger king of Poland, who dumps her when her face is ravaged by smallpox. In Song of the Siren, the first book in her latest series, author C.P. Leslie, a historian by training, tells the tale of a heroine who is determined to survive no matter what the fates have in store. She's no longer the alluring young woman she'd been and has no home to return to, no one to support her. She's still able to interest a handicapped scholar and diplomat, and diplomat by beating him at chess. At his suggestion, the Polish queen offers Juliana the chance to spy for Poland. Knowing that it's her only hope for financial independence, she risks her life to accompany the diplomat to Moscow. In this captivating story, C.P. Leslie weaves a tale of 16th century intrigue, betrayal, conflicting loyalties, friendship, and love. Carolyn Pouncey, who holds a PhD in Russian history from Stanford University, writes under the name C.P. Leslie, who doesn't exist and has no degrees. Carolyn, A.K.C.P., is the author of The Not Exactly Scarlet Pimpernel, The Golden Lynx, The Winged Horse, The Swan Princess, The Vermilion Bird, The Shattered Drum, and Song of the Siren is the first in her newest series called Songs of Steppe and Forest. It's based on 16th century history. When not thinking up new ways to torture her characters, C.P. or Carolyn edits other people's manuscripts, reads voraciously, maintains her website, and practices classical ballet. The love of ballet finds expression in her Tarke Chronicles. A historian by profession, Carolyn, also hosts new books in historical fiction for the New Books Network. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. So let's start with the question, how did you come to write historical novels about this particular part of the world? Well, this is what I do in real life. I'm a medieval Russian historian, and I have published nonfiction on the reign of Ivan the Terrible. But I work in publishing and not in teaching, and that means that I don't get summers off. And so about 25 years ago, I had started playing around with writing fiction. And it occurred to me almost immediately that this was something I could do with a PhD, because since I couldn't go to the archives, I couldn't really write um, nonfiction that was going to be acceptable by the standards that have prevailed ever since the Soviet Union collapsed. And 
yet I didn't want to give up on this world that I loved. And I thought what I could do is take all that information and put it into a set of novels that would show, among other things, what Muscovite historians think the society was like, because there's been a kind of sea change in how we understand the 16th and 17th centuries in the last 30, 40 years, and it's so new, and there are so few of us that it hasn't even made it into textbooks. So this is a way for... um, just the general public, um, but even other Russian historians read these books to find out about the Muscovite period. Huh. So some of your characters were actual historical, often royal figures. Then, if you don't have access to the archives, how and where do you do your research? Well, uh, if we had video, you would see that behind me there are four huge bookcases that are filled with books, you know, two and three layers deep. And I have accumulated these over the years. I have chronicles uh, that have been printed. There's an enormous amount of stuff that has been printed ever since the 19th century. It's just that if you want to do an academic research article, then you do have to provide new stuff from the archives. But for the kind of research that I need to do for fiction, I have all the sources pretty much available to me. And I go back to them each time I have a question. I also know an enormous number most of the other Muscovite historians whom I send frantic emails about if I need to know whether Tatars had dogs or whatever. Um, And they're all (laughs) wonderful. They all respond in kind. Um, I do use the internet. The internet is wonderful, especially for images and stuff. But of course, Wikipedia, even though it's better than it used to be, is not a completely trustworthy historical source. So I start there if I just need to check something quickly, and then I go to the books. Now, I know Song of the Siren just came out now uh, in the last month, but you might start hearing from people like me who were drawn in to the story and could not help but read your previous books because Juliana is such an interesting character. So those of us who have read your previous books already met her. Can you talk about her metamorphosis from who she was to who she has become? Sure. And first, I'm delighted that you read the other books and that you found her an interesting character. She actually turned into one of my favorite characters. Um, When I first introduced her in The Winged Horse, I saw her mostly as a foil for the heroine of that book, who was very competent and, you know, adequately pretty, but more a strong personality and a strong figure. And I wanted to contrast her with this very sensuous, very beautiful young woman who uh, represented a kind of traditional femininity that the heroine just didn't. Um, And then I, sometime in the middle of writing that novel, I realized that the main antagonist, who is a young man named Tulpar, which is the, the Tatar name for the winged horse, would be a perfect match for another character, Maria, who really needed to have some trouble in her life. And I thought Juliana would also give Maria some much-needed trouble. And so I brought her back uh, at the end of The Swan Princess and married her off to Maria's father. So now Maria has this stepmother who's only two years older than she is and who is um, 
still, you know, the classic siren and has her father, you know, mumbling over her and slavering over her, and which no one wants to see in a parent, right? <laughs> and so as I got to know Juliana toward the end of that novel, I was starting to wonder what made her so cold and so calculating, which she is under this um, impression that she gives the world of being very sensuous. She started to re reveal her story to me, and I realized how vulnerable she was. And so I just wanted to explore who she really was. And that's why at the beginning of this novel, I decided that if I was ever going to get her to change, which is what as novelists we want to have happen, I was going to have to completely pull the rug out from under her because she was so guarded. And I even wrote the story in first person, which has become a, a hallmark of the new series, because I knew there was no way I could make her sympathetic unless I put the reader right behind her eyes. And so what's happened to her is that at the beginning, a month before the novel opens, she is still the darling of the Polish court. She has uh, left her Russian husband. She has gone first to Lithuania, where we see her in um, Legends 5, The Shattered Drum, and she's converted to Catholicism. And she is has been the mistress of the younger king of Poland. Just to confuse things maximally, at this time, the Poles had two co-ruling kings named Sigismund. And they were known as Sigismund the Old, the father who's about to turn 75, and Sigismund the Young, who, when he first runs into Juliana, is 17. So he's perfectly placed to fall head over heels for a slightly older woman who, you know, is going to show him um, life, in effect. But then she catches smallpox, and because she's caught smallpox, the young king, who's now only 21 and shallow, dumps her immediately. And her first day back at court, which is where we see her in chapter one, it's a disaster. She has to watch him um, fondling her replacement, uh, who is a 17-year-old beauty, and openly spurning her. And as soon as he does that, because she is a newcomer, she's not an aristocrat, the entire court turns its back on her because she's no longer a way for them to gain favor with the king. She's so terrible when we first meet her, and um, I don't remember which of the books. She's really a horrible, you know, your portrayer is just a terrible person. So I, I was kind of surprised that I came to love her in this book and admire her. I was surprised I came to love her and admire her in this book. <laughs> I wouldn't really say she was ever terrible. I would say that she was certainly, um, you know, her whole way of supporting herself was to appeal to powerful men. And she's she's a concubine when we meet her in The Winged Horse. And she is basically a high-class courtesan, even when she's at the Polish court. And so her she believes that her face and her body are the only thing that are worthwhile about her, because she's been told this from the time that she turned six, that, that the only thing that's important about her is that she's beautiful. And so, yeah, she, she takes advantage of it. She finds a way to make... Um, 
make it count for her to support herself. And this is one of the things that really interests me about fiction is that you can take these very difficult characters and you can really explore what makes them difficult so that in the end people can understand that they can be in the end you know, that everybody has a reason for what they do. And as long as we're not talking about heinous crimes here, I think most people can eventually be forgiven for their sins if they come to understand mm -hmm. them. So let's talk about someone else. Why is Felix, Felix Osolinsky in Krakow? Okay, Felix is possibly my favorite hero of, of all my books. He is such a sweetheart. He is mm -hmm. the son of of prominent old Polish magnate family. And he, um, he's in Krakow first because he lives there, um, because he wouldn't want to live on his estates. You know, all of the cool stuff is in Krakow. But he is also um, serving King Sigismund the Elder as a diplomat and, as we soon discover, a spy. So he has um, an education that began in a university in Padua, Italy. But then he uh, had a riding accident, um, and he was left with a permanent limp. And so because of that, he cannot any longer do all of the sort of traditional noble things. Mm -hmm. He's He rides with difficulty. It's difficult for him even to walk without a cane. And he can't fence or fight or hunt or any of those sorts of things. But he's actually fine with that because he is a Renaissance man and a scholar. He's very intelligent. And he has a you know, European-wide uh, education. He finished it at the, what's now the Jagiellonian University in Krakow, which was a world-class university then, uh, although a very new one, and is still a world-class university. And uh, so that's what he does. He, he lives at the court. He attends the court when he's not traveling back and forth to Italy. He's just back from Florence when we meet him. And he um, rescues Juliana, in a sense. As she's coming off this horrible first day back at court, she knows, she realizes as a result of what's happening that her only supporter at the court still is Queen Bonasforza, who herself is from Milan. She's a relative of the Borgia family. And so she doesn't want to risk offending Queen Bona by leaving this um, command performance of a reception too early. And she takes refuge in an alcove where she sees these two men playing chess. And she just wants to sit there and be ignored. But uh, Felix suddenly turns around and asks her opinion about the chess game, and she says, mate in five. And he doesn't believe her. He can't imagine how uh, she could solve the, the puzzle of the chess game in five moves because he can't see fewer than seven. And she gets up and shows him, and from that moment they become friends. Mm. I thought it was refreshing to have a hero with a handicap. So their journey um, on the sled to Moscow, is that... Is that something that might have happened? Is that based on facts? It is. Historical? Um, sled is perhaps, uh, I think I do refer to it as a sleigh or a sled, but what we're actually talking about here is a covered carriage. Uh, they ran them on runners in the winter because uh, the, the whole area was covered by snow pretty much from, oh, I would guess when I was in Russia, it was October through April. Uh, it was pretty much solid snow. And then in the summer, they take the runners off and they put wheels on. Uh, but either way, they're drawn by horses. So that's what they're doing. They're riding in an enclosed carriage. 
Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the difference between those relationships, earlier lovers that we've already discussed, and her current relationship with Felix? Yeah, sure. Um, she has a very complicated <laughs> romantic history, and most of it's not really all that romantic. Um, as you mentioned and I mentioned, she comes from an area in what is now northwest Afghanistan and from a poor family who sold her into slavery when she was six years old. And the man who bought her bought her with the attention that um, when she grew up, she would be his concubine. So she has been basically a sex slave from the time that she was 11 years old. And she has simply been sold from one person to another, first within uh, Khorasan, which is this region, and then to a Tatar Bey um, in the winged horse who then dies early in that novel. And as happened at the time, she's sort of inherited by his son. And at the end of that novel, she leaves with Topar. And he is the first man that she ever chooses to be with. But because she's so injured and he's got a huge chip on his shoulder, the two of them just don't, they they can't make it work. And so the one thing he does for her is he supports her in Crimea for two years, uh, even though he's off on the step and not living with her. And then he takes her to Moscow, and that's how she meets her husband. He then leaves. He's married um, to Maria, and he doesn't have anything more to do with uh, Juliana until the beginning of this book. But she, um, the marriage doesn't work out either. And so she ends up in Lithuania and with the king, as I mentioned. And so she's still pretty much in this, um, I have to sleep with people because this is how I get fed mode. And she's, she's tremendously guarded because she has never really recognized what an awful past she has. And she she knows about it, but she doesn't allow herself to feel it. And as a result, she doesn't feel anything. She's always focused on the main chance. And so when she runs into Felix, because he has this handicap and he doesn't um, think of her only in terms of her face, he's able to see that she has actually quite a considerable education. It's a geisha Uh, geisha education is directed towards pleasing men, but she nonetheless knows a lot about poetry and literature and music and art, Um, and he relates to her that way, and because she can't imagine, because she's so focused on her face, which is now ruined by the the, uh, smallpox, she can't imagine that he would be interested in her romantically, and therefore she sees his friendship as just that, and he, he is the first person she ever trusts since her mother, you know, abandoned her since the age of six. And because he manages to keep it light and he challenges her and he values her mind, that's what allows her gradually to start to feel that the world is not an entirely hostile place. And so that's really what triggers the change in her. Mm-hmm. And she, he needs her because of her command of so many languages. Can you talk a little bit about that? Persian, Turkish, Russian, and, and which of those languages do you, have you studied? 
Well, the only one I have studied is Russian, but because I was and am a medievalist, that means I also studied Old Church Slavic and I can read 16th century Russian, which is an absolute pill because the grammatical system was breaking down and so half the time you can't tell whether a sentence means Peter hit Paul or Paul hit Peter. <laughs> There's no punctuation and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's a mess. But... Um, I, I have a couple of Tatar language uh, dictionaries and textbooks that I can use to do really, really simple words, but otherwise uh, I'm afraid Juliana's on her own. I can read a little Polish just because it's so much like Russian, but I can't. The reason I sent them to Russia really is because I can't read enough Polish to do the research. So there's an interesting scene in which Felix is teaching Juliana how to sit, walk, speak, act more like a man because... That's a, the, she is able to accompany him as his uh, translator. Only uh, the queen requests that she go there as a man, dressed as a man. Can you address court decorum for men and women at the time? How different would it be today? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, she, it's not that, that um, how should I put this? She has to go as a man. In other words, Diplomats uh, didn't stay in places in those days. They traveled on a specific mission, and they did whatever they were assigned to do, and then they came home. As a general rule, women did not accompany envoys. So if she's going to go, she has to go as a man, and she wants to go as a man because she knows that when she runs into her husband, she's going to have trouble, and she's hoping that nobody will recognize her, basically. So... um, so that was a fun scene to write because even today there are distinct identifiable differences between the way men talk and the way women talk or the way men move and the way women move. And it was much more exaggerated then. I mean, it, the, the 16th century in Europe was not worried about being sexist. You know, the general idea was that men were full citizens and women were ornaments if you they were lucky and um, housekeepers and baby factories. But, you know, they weren't even considered to have the same level of intellect as a man. And especially for Juliana, because, you know, she is like this exaggerated form of femininity because her whole life has been devoted to playing this role and pleasing men and being a mirror to men. And so she moves in this very seductive way and she has to abandon all of that and learn how to take strides like a man, what it feels like. I mean, clothing was very restrictive for women, right? They, They had farthingales and corsets and big hoop skirts and all of this kind of thing they had to deal with. And you're walking around in Florida skirts all the time. So... For her, it's it's a real thing, and and because she's kind of a natural actress, be, and because she has to be, she's always trying to present herself as as somebody else. She she takes to it, and and she even enjoys it uh, in a way. But it's not an easy thing for her. She, she and as we find out later on, not everyone is completely convinced. Um, but she's resigned to the idea that a, at best people are going to think she's a very effeminate boy. Right. Without revealing too much of the plot, let's talk about the listening devices used by the Russians and how the acoustics of those storerooms led to good spying possibilities. Okay, so this is one of the coolest things. Um, This is one of the things I love about writing fiction. I actually found out about 
these listening devices. They're real. They are absolutely real. And I found out about them on Pinterest, of all places. And then I went and looked and read the Russian news articles about them. And in, I think, 2017, they um, had a bunch of archaeologists doing research on uh, what's called the Kataygarad Wall. Now, if you can imagine, I'm sure you've seen pictures of the Moscow Kremlin with those big red walls and the towers, right? Sure. So that is the central... Uh, that was at one time the entire city of Moscow, and everyone lived inside those walls. And then by about the 15th century, people started moving outside the walls because there just wasn't enough space. And those red walls that we see now, those were built by Italian architects in the 1480s or thereabouts. So then a community arose around the um, what's now the current Kremlin, and that was initially occupied by merchants and artisans and lower class people. And then gradually the noblemen also moved out into that region. And in 1535, um, Grand Princess Elena Glinskaya, who was the mother of Ivan the Terrible, started the process of building a proper brick wall. Now this thing was massive. It was six feet across. It was on top of this massive em embankment. And it was impenetrable. It lasted intact until Stalin blew it up with TNT 400 years later. And they, uh, because so little of it is left, thanks to Stalin, the archaeologists went in and started excavating the foundations of the original wall. And they discovered these listening devices. The, there were chambers that were apparently supposed to be masquerading as storage chambers. And in them were these little vents, in effect, through which the people inside the chamber could hear what was going on outside. Now, what they were doing there is a big question. The scientists thought that they were there to listen to invaders. Um, for example, uh, the Poles invaded Moscow as part of what's called the Time of Troubles a little bit later in the 17th century. And if you were standing in these chambers, you could possibly hear them talking. But it doesn't really make sense that that would be the explanation. Uh, first off, the, they know that the vents were there from 1535, so they were built for whatever was going on in 1535. And then secondly, you don't travel a thousand miles from Vilnius to stand outside an impenetrable forces, a fortress and then say, so what do you think we should do next? <laughs> right? Right. While they're standing up on the wall shooting you with flaming arrows and boiling oil and God knows what. You just don't, that, that's not where you stop to have a discussion. So I don't know what they were used for either. But a fellow historian of mine said, I bet they were used to spy on the diplomats because they housed diplomats in the Kataygorod, which is that region of the city, the trading quarter. And if you were a diplomat to Russia... You got stuck in a house, and you weren't supposed to leave unless somebody escorted you to the Kremlin. So it would be a perfect, it, it, for a novelist's point of view, it's a perfect explanation. And so I, as soon as I heard it while I was still writing The Shattered Drum, I thought I have to find a way to use this. It's just too good to waste. Mm -hmm. So after Juliana accepts the Queen's assignment to accompany Felix, she and Felix, with Felix's help, I think, 
zero in on specific members of the Polish aristocracy who might be spies. Again, without revealing too much of the plot, can you talk about how she does that? Yes. Um, Well, how she does it is actually fairly simple because Felix tells her early on that the people who are suspected of spying, um, because the Poles have discovered that um, from the year before, the embassy, they said, in the year before, of which Felix was a member, there was information that was leaked to the Russians, and they don't know where it came from, and they don't know about the listening devices, and so they assume that somebody must be working for the other side. And there's also been a wholly fictional assassination attempt against Queen Bona, which uh, Juliana overhears uh, people talking about at the initial reception. So the Poles are worried about spies infiltrating from Russia and perhaps attacking um, the royals. And they're also worried about spies on their own side who are negotiating with the Russians. And so the reason that Felix and Juliana are sent on the mission in the first place is so that they can find out what's going on and if there is a traitor, unmask that person. And if there are Russian spies being sent in and they have a contact with the Poles, they can find out that. And so that's where the whole thing comes in. And the reason that Juliana can zero in on people is, first off, because she knows that of the seven people on the mission, these are the ones that are most likely to be involved because they were on the same mission the year before. And then beyond that, uh, because if you're a high-class courtesan and your job is to keep yourself in food by monitoring everything that's going on around you, Juliana has a very um, clear and specific sense of social distinctions. And so she looks at people to see if they look like they might be in need of money or if they seem to be overly friendly. She's great at eavesdropping because she doesn't have moral scruples about things like that. You know, whatever works, works. And that's how she, and she has that perception. And then what Felix brings to the table is that he knows all these people. He's known them since he was a young man. And so he can say, well, that's not really plausible for this person, but it might work for that person. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's such a wonderful, tricky character, that Juliana. So her ex-husband is a wild card. He sure she is. <laughs> wa- she wants a divorce. He has lots of power over her. He can lock her up in his house. Uh, can you talk about how a husband in that society has that kind of power? Well, this is a big difference between Muscovy and Poland. Um in a way, I so wish that I could have set the whole uh, novel in Poland, Lithuania, because these two states are right next door to each other, and they are so different in this period. And Poland, Lithuania just fascinates me. It's it's part of Renaissance culture. It's almost an offshoot of Italy in some ways. And Muscovy is so closed in because Poland is Catholic, so it's part of the whole Catholic world in Europe. And Muscovy is Orthodox. It's the last independent or Eastern Orthodox Christian state. And so it's very focused on its own culture and its own um, way of looking at things. And so in that culture, and, and particularly in Muscovy, this has nothing to do with Orthodoxy, it's actually a political thing in Muscovy, 
But the whole political system depended on marital connections, which were also political connections, and particularly closeness to the grand prince. So, so the prize in the system was to marry one of your daughters to the grand prince, who would later become czar. And if you did that, you were golden. So the way that this, you, what the system was able to function is that young men and young women were not allowed to socialize. And people literally met at the altar. The arrangements were made by their parents, and the young couple generally had no say in it. And the whole system of seclusion required a, an elite aristocratic wife to remain within the home, except under very specific circumstances. She could attend weddings, she could go to church, she could visit uh, other members of her family, especially female members. And um, in a pinch, so this to give women a certain amount of power, she could go into the women's quarters of another family to decide whether a prospective bride was suitable, that is, whether she was healthy, likely to produce children, and good-natured. So within that system, uh, a wife, uh, she has a lot of power over the household if she's an aristocrat, but she has almost no power in the larger society. So it's not just that um, Koshkin, because he's the husband, uh, gets to determine how his wife behaves and where she goes, it's that her whole life is to be lived within this household. And Juliana hated that life because she's so focused on pleasing men and she gets along with men, but she doesn't have any way of getting along with other women and and she doesn't have family of her own in Moscow. So he can do it just because of who she is. So just by virtue of being her husband. Mm -hmm. Wow, Carolyn, this is so interesting. I would want to ask you a lot more, many more questions, but it would tell everybody too much about the book. They're just going to need to read it. So uh, I'd like to conclude by asking you the traditional new books question. What are you working on now? Well, this is a part of a series. It was originally going to be two books, and now I'm imagining seven. So the second one is actually pretty much done. It's out with the people who read it before publication and tell me where I screwed up in various places or what I need to improve. Uh, so that one, it probably won't come out until next year. I'm not sure exactly uh, what my press's publication plans are, but I'm imagining next um, February, perhaps. And I'm starting to think about the third one. And I haven't, I've written maybe a thousand words on it, but I'm not really happy even with the beginning yet. So I'm still in the planning stages on that. Is Juliana going to appear again? Are we going to find out more? Um, I'm imagining that there's going to be a grand reunion of all of the characters from the steppe and forest um, for a big wedding in uh, Moscow and probably in book five. That will be satisfying. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed being a guest for a change. And thank you for listening to this New Books Network podcast. Again, this is GP Gottlieb. And today I've been talking to CP Leslie, author of Song of the Siren from the upcoming series Songs of Steppe and Forest published in 2019 by Five Directions Press. 
Join the New Books Network to learn about new books of all kinds and to hear my previously recorded podcasts. Goodbye until my next conversation.